Are you familiar with the Federal Conscience Fund? It was a fund created by the federal government back in 1811. Because almost since the inception of our country, people have defrauded the federal government. They've stolen from the government. And so these are self-imposed fines, restitution, money that people have sent back to the government trying to make things right. I mean, you can read the stories of what people have stolen and then the self-imposed fines that they've given. It really is quite incredible. There's been people who they've stolen government-issued blankets. People haven't paid the right amount for their postage. There was one lady whose husband died, and she realized that he was cheating on his income tax payments. And so she sent in a check trying to make things right. One of my favorite stories was a man who had cheated on his income tax payments, and so he sent in a check along with this letter. He wrote, I have stolen from the government by cheating on my income taxes, and I can't sleep. I've enclosed a check for $75. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest of what I owe. Well, over the years, there have been a lot of people who've had a lot of sleepless nights because this fund has generated over $5.7 million so far. You know, what is it that causes us to suffer these sleepless nights? What is it that causes us to point the finger right back at ourselves? Well, we know all too well what it is, don't we? It is the guilt within. It's that familiar feeling that we've all had at one point or another where we know we've done wrong and that wrong hasn't justly been accounted for. And so there's this guilt. You know, we'll see it this morning as we continue through the life of Joseph. This morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 42. And just to remind you of where we've been in the story, you remember Joseph was born into this highly dysfunctional family. He was number 11 out of 12 boys. And this family was hugely dysfunctional, so dysfunctional in fact that his brothers sold Joseph away into slavery because he was the favorite. While in slavery, he's working for Potiphar, false accusations are made, and so he's thrown into prison. He interprets a dream for the cupbearer and the chief baker, but he's forgotten about. He's left in prison. Then Pharaoh has a dream, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream, and he tells Pharaoh that there's going to be a famine in the land. But he doesn't just tell Pharaoh the problem. He gives Pharaoh the solution. And then this credible, incredible reversal takes place. Joseph moves from the pit to the palace, from rags to riches. He is now the prime minister over Egypt, in charge of all of Egypt. He has all of this authority. And that's kind of where we left off the story last week, when the famine, it does indeed strike. But because of Joseph's leadership, Egypt was prepared. So as we jump into Genesis 42 this week, our focus shifts. We've been focused on Joseph and everything that's going on in Joseph's life, his plight in Egypt. But this morning, because of Joseph's shrewd leadership, we're going to turn our attention from the well-stocked granaries in Egypt to the empty cupboards of Canaan because his brothers are coming. We are shifting our attention from Joseph to Joseph's brothers. And we're going to see how God awoke their seared guilty consciences and he was about to begin to reunite this divided, dysfunctional family. It really is an exciting turn in the story of Joseph. You've got to see this scene and how it plays out. Let's go ahead and jump in. Genesis 42, beginning in verses 1 through 17. It says, 
When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was the governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from? He said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, no, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go forth from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. As we follow Joseph's brothers on their journey to Egypt, you must remember that none of them know what has become of Joseph. They they don't know whether he's lived or died. They don't know how he's faring. They have no idea what has become of him. And at the same time, Joseph has no idea how his family is faring back in Canaan. He knows about the famine, but he doesn't know what's going on, what has taken place. I mean, you have to remember, over 20 years have transpired until this moment where they are together again in Egypt. At this point in history, one thing is true, and everyone knows this, and that is Egypt has become the soup kitchen for the starving world. I mean, every day, every week, thousands are streaming in from foreign countries hoping to buy some food from this shrewd prime minister who has prepared Egypt so well for this famine. And now here are Joseph's brothers standing in line with all of these other gaunt-faced, starving foreigners with empty stomachs, hoping that they can stand before this prime minister of Egypt and buy some food. I mean, you think about it. These guys, they are starving. They are hoping, they are praying that the prime minister will be favorable to them, that they can leave with some bread, with some food that they can take back to their families back in Canaan. You know, you don't take a trip like that. This is over a 250-mile trip from Canaan to Egypt. You don't take a trip like that in those days unless you're desperate. You don't, you don't take that kind of a trip. These guys were desperate men. And so after all this hard travel, being malnourished and weak, here they are bowing before the prime minister, Joseph. They bow before Joseph. And this is an incredible scene because Joseph's brothers, they bow before him, but they don't recognize him. 
They don't know just who it is they're bowing before. Maybe it's because they're weak and they just can't think straight. That might have something to do with it. But also, you have to remember, over 20 years have passed by. And the last time they saw Joseph, well, he was just a 17-year-old teenage dreamer out in the fields. And now, here he is, he's a man in his late 30s, early 40s. His voice has matured, and he's speaking Egyptian as if it was his native tongue. I mean, when they left him last, he spoke and understood Hebrew. But now, he's using an interpreter to communicate with them. What's more is Hebrews in those days, they wore beards and Joseph, well, he's clean shaven, just like an Egyptian. And the clothes he's wearing from his headdress to his sandals, it all has an Egyptian designer label to it, not some kind of Hebrew manufacturer. I mean, Joseph at this point, he walked and talked like an Egyptian. He looked like an Egyptian. Surely he was an Egyptian. What's more is if the brothers even thought there was this remote possibility that perhaps Joseph was alive and perhaps they might see him in Egypt, well, they would have been studying the faces of the slaves, not the faces of Egyptian royalty. And so here they are bowing down before the prime minister of Egypt, their brother, Joseph. It is incredible. But just as the brothers don't recognize Joseph, Well, Joseph recognizes right away just who they are. He has these flashbacks from his youth because he had those dreams. You remember those dreams, don't you? He had those dreams about his brothers would harvest these sheaves of grain and how their sheaves would bow down before his sheaf. And he had that other dream about how the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars would all come and bow down before him. God had given him those dreams. It's how God had communicated to Joseph in the past. Now, just what God said would happen through his dreams, it's happening right here in the most unlikely of places, an Egyptian palace of all places. Here it is happening, his brothers bowing down and showing respect to this Egyptian prime minister. Now, at that time, they don't realize that this prime minister is Joseph. They don't know just who it is they're bowing down to. And so Joseph has to figure out, do these brothers, do they still harbor this animosity, this hatred toward him? Or after all these years, are they carrying around the weight of a guilty conscience? Or does it keep them up at night? Do they have this sorrow in their heart, this guilt for what they've done to him? So... Joseph, he creates in an effort to find out where his brothers stand, this fascinating parallel. I mean, don't miss this in this story. It seems as if Joseph just somehow recreates this harrowing scene from his teenage years, that that scene at the mouth of the pit. I mean, whatever happened 20 years prior, it seems to be mirrored right here. Just take a moment, think through what happened with me, okay, in that pit. You remember the brothers in the field and they're watching and they're scanning as they're working and they see Joseph approaching and they become consumed with hatred and they start planning with one another how they're going to kill him. And then Reuben steps in and says, no, we can't kill him. And so then Joseph gets there and just imagine what that conversation must have been like, the accusations that his brothers must have hurled at Joseph, how they must have said, hey, Joseph, have you just come here to spy on us again? Are you going to go and take back some other kind of evil report to dad? I mean, you're just a spy. This is what you do to us. You make life hard on us, Joseph. You haven't come here to help us in any way. You're a spy for dad. 
And no doubt Joseph would have protested his innocence and said, no, 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 I'm just doing my job. I'm just, I'm just coming to give a report. I, I, I mean you no harm. I, I want you to do your job well. And how his protest would have fallen on deaf ears and then he's thrown into the pit. It, isn't that likely what happened? And now in this situation, it seems as if things are eerily reversed. Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies. They deny and their denials fall on deaf ears. Joseph throws them into the pit, into the prison. They're going to stay there for three days. Three days, you know, that's, that's a long enough time to reflect, to resurface some of those hidden secrets, hidden sins that you just don't talk about from so long ago. So you understand that God often uses similar unfair circumstances in our lives to awaken a guilty conscience. That's what he does. He, he takes these similar circumstances that we experience from, and, and we made happen to somebody else, and then we experience them. And then it awakens this guilt within us and this need to be forgiven and for things to be right. And there's this hurt and there's this guilt that, that rises up. You know, for three days, the brothers, they have time just to sit around and consider what they did to Joseph, what, mu- what life must have been like for him, how things must have gone for him, how hard and how brutal his life must have been. It's, it's enough time to awaken a slumbering, guilty conscience. It's enough time also for Joseph to plan his next move. I want you to see what happens. It is riveting. Let's jump back into the story, verses 18 through 28. It says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them, and he wept. And he returned to them, and he spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give to his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? After three days of torment, in those prison cells, three days in those shackles around their, around their necks and around their ankles, three days just glancing around the walls, perhaps seeing the names and the inscriptions etched into those walls by previous inmates. Three days of wondering what will be next for them 
and three days of wondering what became of their long-lost brother, Joseph. Well, after three days, now they're back in front of that Egyptian prime minister once again. And Joseph says, hey, here's the plan to find out whether or not you guys are spies. Rather than just sending one of you back, I've changed my mind here a little bit. We're going to keep one of you here bound up and the rest of you can go and return with your youngest brother. In that moment, you expect the brothers then to huddle up and to have a conversation about, well, who's the one who should stay behind? Who's the one who should be bound here? I mean, that's the conversation that you expect them to have. But after three days of torment, after three days of just soul searching and feeling this just excruciating guilt and this wondering of what's going to be next, that's not the conversation they have. Did, did you catch their conversations? They begin to discuss their crimes and they say, we're guilty. Look at what we've done to Joseph. We're guilty. It is an emphatic we. It's saying we and we only. We've done this. It's no one else. It's all our fault. We've done this terrible crime. And you think about those boys, oh man, those guys had done some terrible crimes. I mean, you can go back and read about it. You can read about the crimes of Judah. You can read about the crimes of Reuben. You can read about the crimes of all of them over what had taken place in the past. It is some horrific stuff. But what's keeping them from sleeping during these days? It's what they did to Joseph. It's how they treated him. I mean, this tragic conversation, and you read it, they say, God did this to us because of what we did to our brother. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did nothing. I mean, can you imagine that scene, that, that scene the last time they saw Joseph alive? You remember what that scene must have looked like to them? I mean, Joseph, he would have been chained in this chain gang along with all the other slaves headed off to Egypt, a, a shackle around his neck, shackles around his, his ankles, his wrists cuffed in this chains, and he's, he's ripped off, his coat is ripped from him. And then he turns back to his brothers as being led away and he's begging with them and he's pleading with them, Levi, Simeon, Judah, please help me. Don't let them do this to me. Don't let them take me away. Help, brothers, help. And they do nothing. Maybe they continue to hurl insults at him as he's led away. Maybe they just turn in silence. Maybe they, they laugh. They do nothing. Imagine that final haunting image, those cries as they trail off into the distance until they can be heard no longer. And now the brothers, they're back to a place where they can talk about it, where that guilt and, and all that pain and all that hurt and all that guilt doesn't have to stay bottled up anymore. It's able, it's able to come out. And so you understand that the first response of these brothers is to get back together again. And they've had three days just to think about this, just to be confronted with their sin. That they've got to talk about it. And they say, we're guilty. This is because of our guilt. You understand, if you have a guilty conscience, the first step to healing a guilty conscience is to admit your guilt to admit you're wrong, just, just to speak frankly and honestly and say and humbly and say, I've done this wrong. And you think about it. Are, are you more respectful? Do you respect people more who are able to humbly admit their guilt or people who like to try to hide it and keep it a secret in the shadows? 
Who do you respect more? It's the people who are able to humbly say, I was wrong. I did this. I own this. Will you please forgive me? You understand, God has made us in such a way that when we sin against someone else, we bear a portion of that punishment. That there is this guilt that, that we, we have this internal distress that eats at our hearts as well. We become a victim along with our victim. It's what happens. It's how God has made us. And so it's not just Joseph who's been tormented for all these years. No, the brothers, they've experienced their own set of torment as well. And the only way to heal from that is to admit it. It's the, it's the only way. It's, it's you have to be able to be honest. You can't keep it bottled up. You can't keep it secret. You got to let it out and you got to say, I was wrong. I am guilty. And as they do that, these brothers, they surely choke back tears as they say, God must be doing this to us because of what we did to our brother. And imagine being Joseph in that room where he sees his brothers. He, he hears the remorse in their voices. He sees the moisture in their eyes. He understands the pain of their heart. And it's all overwhelming for him because he too remembers those brothers who sold him away. And he remembers those cruel words as he pleaded for help. And so now he rushes from the room and he weeps. He cries because he hasn't been forgotten. He, there's this prospect for being reunited. There's a prospect of healing for this family. It still exists. And so Joseph, he goes away and he has a good cry. But if there's going to be a reuniting, Joseph wants to make sure that the whole family is involved. So he comes back with the plan. And he says, you got to get Benjamin here. And, and he has Simeon bound right before them. And he sends the brothers on their way. And he does so with an added test. All that money that they had used to buy the grain there in Egypt, well, he has it all returned back to their sacks. They go back with plenty of food to eat but also all the money that they were supposed to pay. And so this raises another question for the brothers. Why, God, what is happening? What are you doing to us? Oh, no, they know this is going to be bad. And that's kind of where we're going to leave it this week. We'll, we'll jump in again next week and pick up the story. You will not want to miss what happens next. But for this week, it's important to note that if you want to heal from a guilty conscience, first, you have to admit your guilt. But second, you have to understand and recognize God's involvement. You have to recognize God's involvement. That's what the brothers do. They recognize God is ultimately in this some way. God is working and somehow there's just too many coincidences taking place here. Something is happening. It's got to be God. He's got to be involved. See, to heal from a guilty conscience, you must recognize that all sin is ultimately against God. And we know this because... We're all created by God. So if I sin against you, well, God created you, so I'm also sinning against you and your creator. I'm sinning against God. And God is also the one who gives these moral laws on our hearts. He tells us just internally we know how we ought to treat one another. He is this moral law giver. And so when I violate those laws, when I violate those standards for how I treat you, 
Well, I also violate the moral law giver, God, who created those standards. So all sin against others is a sin against them, but it's also a sin against God. Every sin is also a sin against God. And so because of that, I am accountable to God for my sin. So we understand that, that all of this, whatever I do, I must recognize God's involvement of it all. But sometimes we get things twisted and we think that God is like this karma God, that that karma is really the law at work here in the universe. And in one sense, you can kind of see it because God has put into place in the world this idea of you, you reap what you sow. And so in a general sense, that's true. But in a sin cursed dying world, it doesn't always work that way. That sometimes you can do evil and still be rewarded with good. That sometimes you can do good and still suffer evil. You know, it is possible to cheat on your income tax payments and completely get away with it and have more money because of it. It is also possible to go and to serve the orphan and to serve the widow and to still get cancer. See, we see this at work in our lives in the world. It's, it's not always this one-for-one kind of result. And so... We also understand that the Bible is very, very clear. The God, he's not interested in simply being like a a fire insurance policy or a life insurance policy or some genie who just kind of grants our wishes or makes life easy for us here in this world. That's not really God's purpose in interacting with us. What God wants out of us is a relationship. He wants to be in a dynamic relationship with us, just like a healthy, good family, that you go through good times and bad, and you go through struggles and hardships. No matter what you go through in a good family, you continue to love that person, don't you? You continue to love your family members, no matter what you go through. And sometimes it's really hard, and sometimes there's really hard conversations that have to take place, but you continue to love. And that's what God wants with us, too is people who continue to love him, whether things are going great or whether things are really difficult. And so God, he makes this possible because he he wants people who are able to say, I'm wrong, that I've sinned against God. I've messed up and and you have to own it and say, yeah, I'm guilty. And then you have to take that next step of saying, and I fully trust that Jesus made this restitution payment for me that I could never make. He died on the cross and he rose again so that I can be in right relationship, so that things that were broken can be healed, that while I was all torn up, I can be put back together whole again, that he can do that. He can make that kind of restitution that we can never make. You know, one of the ways that that tends to happen in us is through this great gift that God has given us. It's this gift of our conscience, this gift of knowing this moral law that God has created in the universe, of knowing right and wrong. And yeah, we can, if we work hard enough, we can sear our consciences. But oftentimes, our consciences will keep us up late at night. We'll, have, we'll suffer many restless nights of sleep. We'll have those fingers that we point right back at ourselves because we know the guilt within And God uses that guilt within for our good so that we can be put back into this right relationship with him by admitting our guilt and by trusting that he is involved in this and he can make things right. So today, you know, don't go another day with the weight of a guilty conscience, a heavy conscience. Be clean. 
Be, be excited. Be restored. Experience the joy of knowing that you are in a right relationship with God, that he's healed it, and that ultimately it's going to be good. If you do that, if you're in that kind of a relationship with Jesus, if you really are in a dynamic relationship with Jesus, well then, you won't be able to help but sharing Jesus and impacting people. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us enough that despite all of the wrongs that we've done, you make a way that we can be made right with you, that you can restore what's been lost, what's been broken. So God, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Help us to continue to go out and share Jesus and impact people. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.